Welcome to the second I lecture. And uh, yeah, I need God to help me, so let's pray before we start. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to share about your wonderful creation, the eye, and uh, some of the diseases that, that people can get and how we can treat it. And I pray that you'll give me wisdom to say the right things and help it to be understandable and meaningful to our audience. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I think uh, probably less than half the audience here are actual eye care providers, but maybe some of the rest of you might be interested in ophthalmology or uh, just want to learn more about the eye. Okay, so uh, I was going to talk about MIGS, <laughs> minimally invasive glaucoma surgery. But probably I need to explain what's glaucoma. <laughs> so glaucoma is an eye disease where you slowly go blind. And it takes years, but basically you start losing your peripheral vision, and then towards the end you get tunnel vision and then you can lose that completely. And it's usually caused by elevated eye pressures, but there are some people who just have weak optic nerves, and even though their eye pressures are normal, they still develop glaucoma, their optic nerves get damaged, and they can still go blind. Um, in 2010, there were 2.7 million people with glaucoma. Those are diagnosed glaucoma patients. Uh, there's probably an equal number of undiagnosed glaucoma patients because, you know, the early stages of glaucoma are, um, patients can't tell that they have it. So that's why it's important you, that you get eye exams, especially as you, as you get older, because they can check to see if you have glaucoma or not and treat it so you don't go blind. It's estimated that, uh, yeah, I have a pointer, <laughs> that by 2050, there may be 7.3 million patients with glaucoma. And uh, men and women, they're about the same. All right, so, you know, in 40 years, there may be 270% increase in the incidence of glaucoma. So how do we treat glaucoma? Um, you know, when patients come to the eye doctor and they just, most of the time, they, they're there because they need glasses and they want to see better. And then you tell them, sorry, you have glaucoma and uh, that's why you can't see. That's why you have these black spots in your vision and there's nothing we can do to uh, reverse that. You know, I think whenever you give a, a bad diagnosis to a patient, you have to give them hope. And this is the hope. <laughs> so we can treat glaucoma so you don't lose more vision. And the goal is to keep you seeing as long as you're living. So if a 30-year-old came in with an elevated eye pressure of 30 or 40, normal eye pressure is between 10 and 21 millimeters of mercury. So if a 30-year-old came in with elevated pressure, we're going to be a lot more aggressive and treating them because they've got many more years to live. But if an 80-year-old came in and they've got some early glaucoma, we tell them, well, we look at them and try to figure out how many more years are they going to live. <laughs> and then we tell them, yeah, you have glaucoma, but uh, it's okay. <laughs> Maybe we'll put you on one eye draw, but you're not going to go blind any time in the next two to three years. If you have an idea how much longer you're going to live, let me know. <laughs> and then we'll be more aggressive in treating. <laughs> but usually we start with topical eye drops, and then there's laser trabeculoplasty, which can be performed to lower the pressure. And then there's these minimally invasive glaucoma devices. And uh, if patients have mild to moderate glaucoma, we can use any combination of these three. For more advanced glaucoma, um, sometimes we'll go into more aggressive treatment. 
So this is what happens when you have glaucoma. So this is your visual function, uh, 100%. When it gets to this line, that means you're blind. And let's say this is birth and this is your death. And uh, a lot of people, even if they don't have glaucoma, their visual function does go down a little bit with age, but never to the point where they're affected by it. With glaucoma, you basically have to lose more than 90% of your vision to really be affected. Because, you know, even though we look straight ahead and we can see over here, we can see over here, even if it came out to about half that, you're still seeing well enough. If one eye sees this much and the other eye sees that much, they overlap, so you still have a wide field of view. Um, so if you have glaucoma, you can start losing vision faster. And so if you intervene early, then you can slow down that rate so it, it's not a s steep drop. But some patients, it's amazing how I have patients that have never covered one eye and realized they couldn't see out of the other eye. See, you see the optometrists, they're shaking, nodding their heads. <laughs> and uh, yeah, some people are just not aware of their health conditions. But we have patients that come in at this point, and then if you can intervene, then maybe we can keep them seeing longer. But if you don't intervene, you know, their last few years of their life, um, they're blind. Um, I remember it was in the 80s when I visited Korea as, I think this was in the middle of my medical school years, and there was a, an American missionary who had actually uh, been born in Korea, and then he came back to America, but he often went to Korea, and that year he was doing some work there. And I was a medical student. I didn't know anything about ophthalmology. Um, but we did a bunch of things together, and I've maintained a relationship with him. Well, you know, 10 years later, when I'm a glaucoma specialist, he comes in as a patient of mine. <laughs> and I said, I didn't know you had glaucoma. <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, even in the 80s when, uh, when I had glaucoma, I was supposed to be taking eye drops, but uh, got busy and ignored it. And, and unfortunately, by the time I was treating him, he barely had vision. So he was, he was almost down to here, and then uh, we did do some treatment, but yeah, I think the last five years of his life, uh, he couldn't see anything out of his eyes. But he did live to be uh, like 102. <laughs> so, so I told him, well, you just lived too long. <laughs> or if you had treated the glaucoma earlier, then you would still have your vision. So it's really important to to treat uh, early. So some of the challenges of, tr of treating glaucoma is that, uh, you know, because it's asymptomatic, patients don't even think they have a, a problem. But then they're constantly told they have to use these eye drops. So there's very poor compliance. Sometimes medications are very expensive. Um, some of the branded medications, I mean, patients tell me they spent two or three hundred dollars for a little 2.5 milliliter bottle that's supposed to last them a month. And uh, so then I check their pressure and take them off the medicine and see what the pressure goes up to and, and then put them back on and see what it comes down to. And, uh, that only dropped your pressure by two or three millimeters. I don't think it's worth it. <laughs> Just surgery or something. So that's why, uh, and the eye drops sometimes cause irritation, red eyes, and uh, so then sometimes we end up doing surgery, then they don't have to use the drops as much. But surgery has its own problems with complications. Uh, trabeculectomy, has been the most common glaucoma procedure done for the past 20 or 30 years, but it has a lot of its own problems. Um, so
So that's why uh, surgeries that have less risk, even if they don't, they're not as effective, has become more popular. And that's why we're talking about minimally invasive glaucoma procedures. Okay, so uh, we're going to quickly go over these things because talking about non-compliance. Um, yeah, non-compliance is the number one reason people go blind from glaucoma. When I see patients that are worried about going blind, I, I tell them, look, the only people that go blind from glaucoma are those that either don't follow the treatment plan, like they don't use their eye drops, or they don't follow up with the doctor. Because as long as they're following up, we can see how they're progressing. We can explain to them, show the visual fields, and say, okay, this is how much vision you had last year, this is how much you have now. And then we can institute the treatment that's necessary so that we can sort of flatten the curve rather than having them continue losing vision. So the advantages of minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries is uh, sometimes we can get them off of some medication, so that saves them money. Uh, also with glaucoma, the eye pressure can go up and down throughout the day. And by allowing the fluid to get out easier from the eye, uh, it can flatten the, the peaks. And it's fairly high success rate, very low complication rate, and uh, you don't have to worry about non-compliance. So the, whenever I see a glaucoma patient, the main question is, is your pressure no, low enough? When a person comes in uh, without being on treatment and we diagnose glaucoma, we get a baseline pressure and then decide, okay, I think based on my experience and patients like you, uh, I think we need to drop the pressure by 20 to 30%. And based on studies that have looked at this. But then you drop it 20 or 30% with medications or laser and then you follow them over time, and if they're still losing vision, then you say, oh, okay, we should have dropped it more. <laughs> but every time you try to lower the pressure more, there's more risk, more complication involved. So that's why they say hindsight is 2020. but going forward, you wonder, um, you know, what should the pressure be? So MIGS will control the pressure all the time. Um, so this is the diurnal fluctuation of eye pressures. This was uh, measured with a, a contact lens that somehow measures the pressure in the eye. And uh, if you see, Hydrus is one of the mixed devices. And you can see how the red line is, doesn't peak as much. The black line is when you treat with medications. Because you're putting a drop in once a day or twice or three times a day, during the troughs, you know, right before the next dose, the pressure could be higher, and then it comes down. Okay, so uh, surgical options for glaucoma. I don't know. You don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder if maybe there's some people here that wanted to hear this lecture because they have glaucoma. You know, 2% of the population over the age of 60 will have glaucoma. So that's, I'm sure there's some people at this conference that have glaucoma. Or there, and there may be a few people that have it, but they don't realize it. <laughs> okay, so this is a tube shunt. You can stick into the eye to uh, drain the fluid out. Trabeculectomy is where you make a little flap on the wall of the eye, get the fluid to run out. Laser trabeculoplasty is where you laser the drain of the eye inside the eye uh, to get the drain to work better. Endoscopic cycle of photocoagulation is where you go in with an endoscope and uh, visualize the ciliary process and basically destroy some of it by burning it. Uh, expression, trabectome, canaloplasty, these are all different procedures that came in different years. And MIGS is the main topic of our talk today, which came around 2012. So minimally invasive glaucoma surgery is defined as an ab-internal approach, meaning you 
do the surgery from inside the eye so that the superior conjunctiva is not disturbed uh, because that allows uh, other more invasive glaucoma surgeries to be done on the top white part of the eye. Uh, it's minimally traumatic. Yeah, efficacious, it's minimally efficacious. <laughs> so some people say MIGS might stand for minim minimally effective glaucoma surgery. In fact, uh, you know, I was supposed to only give one hour lecture, and then Jeff Ng was uh, supposed to give the second hour lecture, but unfortunately he had a, a mission trip in uh, Palau a, a few weeks before coming here, but he and a couple of other people tested positive for COVID once they got there. <laughs> Before they went, they were all negative. So somewhere in their travels, they got it. When they got there, they tested positive. So then they had to um, quarantine. Uh, they were immediately treated with uh, monoclonal antibodies. And I think they all recovered. But because of that, he couldn't do the surgeries, that the cataract surgeries they were planning to do. So then he called Dr. MD and asked, well, uh, I'm thinking of extending my mission trip for another week, so I won't be able to make it to the AMEN conference. So Jeff actually called me <laughs> to explain what's going on. And so I told him, okay, well, I can give a second lecture. Um, and then when he, he asked me what topic I was going to speak on, and, and I said, oh, I'm going to talk about ice dance and hydrus, uh, the mixed devices. And he goes, oh yeah, you mean the minimally effective glaucoma surgery? Because <laughs> he's a cornea specialist. And I asked him if he was doing it, and he said he wasn't doing it. Um, but yeah, for some patients it does help. Okay, so where does mix fit in? So there's mild, moderate, and severe glaucoma, and MIGS is more for the mild to moderate glaucoma. The severe glaucoma is uh, they need lower pressures and the mixed devices won't bring the pressures that low. So the pre-op considerations, you uh, have to do, get a visual field test to determine the severity of the glaucoma, uh, take a good look at the optic nerve, and there's lots of uh, digital imaging that can help to analyze the nerve and the nerve fiber layer. Pachymetry is very important. That's uh, checking the thickness of the cornea because people with thinner corneas can have normal eye pressures even though their true eye pressure is higher because the way we measure eye pressure is by putting a, a small device on the cornea and pushing, making it flat to a certain size and figuring out how much pressure does, is required to... Uh, flatten it out a certain amount. And uh, if you happen to have thin corneas, it's just more pliable, so you get falsely low readings. And I have had patients who have seen an eye doctor for 20 years and had eye pressure checks, but very rarely had a dilated exam, so the doctor never looked at the optic nerve. And then he started developing cataracts, so he got sent to our office for cataract surgery, but then we dilate them and do a full eye exam, and we had to tell him, sorry, you know, most of the vision loss you have is from glaucoma. And uh, he said, I've been going to my eye doctor for 20 years. How come he didn't pick it up? Well, yeah, he might have never looked at the optic nerve, and that's the important thing in in diagnosing glaucoma. So the pressures are important, but that's not the main factor because a third of glaucoma patients can have normal pressure and still have glaucoma. But the majority of patients, they have elevated eye pressure. And uh, unfortunately, the only thing we know how to treat is to lower the pressure. And fortunately, even if you have what's called normal tension glaucoma, uh, studies have shown that if you lower the pressure another 30% or more, 
you can slow the progression of glaucoma. Gonioscopy is where you put a special lens on the eye to look at the drain of the eye so that we can see if the drain is open or not. And dilated fundus exam just to make sure they don't have any other ocular pathology before you do surgery. So if you refer a patient, so this is for uh, the non, well, for eye doctors who might be referring to a, a glaucoma specialist. So if you refer a patient to a surgery center or a glaucoma specialist for possible surgery, you want to uh, tell them what medications they have, have they been progressing, are they compliant with treatment, and if you can send the most recent couple of visual fields, that would be helpful. So this is the definition of mild uh, or early stage glaucoma. So this is a visual field test of the left eye. We have the patient look straight ahead at the center dot. It's in a, you're sitting in a machine with this round dome and uh, lights will flash on the side. And every time you see a light flash, you press the button and the machine maps out where you could see and where you couldn't see. So about 15 degrees temporal is everyone's blind spot. So that's how we can tell this is the left eye because it's on the left side. And uh, the machine even puts some uh, spots on the blind spot. And if you see it, then they know you moved your eye. <laughs> so when we get the printout, we can tell how reliable it is or not. Uh, but basically, mild glaucoma is where you pretty much have no defect, maybe a little bit in the periphery, but uh, no visual field defects. But there are some uh, what's called frequency doubling or short wavelength automated perimetry, which can pick up glaucoma visual field loss even earlier than the regular perimetry. Um, so you, you can see some abnormality in that and we still call that mild. So moderate glaucoma is where you have some defect within one hemifield, either the bottom or the top, and it's not within the central uh, five degrees of fixation. I actually think that maybe we should uh, extend that a little further, but this is what's called severe stage, where almost half your visual field is dense or um, you have it on top and bottom. Oh, did I explain that the dark area is where you don't see well <laughs> and the light areas are where you see well? <laughs> and then if you happen to have it closer to the center, then it's going to affect your central vision earlier. So we call that severe as well. Okay, so now you get to learn some eye anatomy. So aqueous humor is produced by the cellular process here. It travels, oh, too fast. <laughs> okay, so it goes in front of the lens through the pupil and out here, but with glaucoma, uh, <laughs> here. Okay, I'm gonna stop here. So the trabecular meshwork is where what we call conventional outflow, and uveoscleral is non-conventional outflow. But uh, basically, there's two ways for fluid to get out. Now, this, this aqueous humor is uh, very important to the health of the eye because the lens has no blood supply. The cornea has no blood supply. So it's the nutrients within the aqueous humor that supplies uh, these structures. Uh, with nutrients to, for it to stay clear and healthy. But if you hold on to too much of it um, because it's not getting out, then pressure builds up in the eye and the softest part of the eye happens to be the optic nerve which is down in the, the back of the eye and it causes the optic nerve to get stretched back and uh, it damages the nerve. And then, so when you don't have a good connection from the eyeball to the brain, then you don't see well. <laughs> All right, so uh, 
Yeah, I feel like maybe I shouldn't go through so much detail of this. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> All right. So the, uh, this trabecular meshwork pathway, uh, this, as the eye pressure goes up, this is the, the area where the fluid gets out of the eye. And as the eye pressure goes up, the Schlem's canal can collapse and uh, fluid can't get out as, as well. So there's uh, three areas of resistance. The trabecular meshwork and parts of passive resistance to permeability. And uh, sometimes Schlem's canal itself can close and that can uh, provide resistance and even downstream. So this aqueous humor goes out through Schlem's canal, through the collector channels, through aqueous veins, and then the episcleral veins, and then into your venous system, eventually goes back to your heart. That's why the question earlier that I was asking, well, what if uh, we, our diet changed so that we don't have these growth factors in our food, uh, would that help with the health of the eye? And what Dr. Blackburn was saying was that, uh, yeah, it's the, the, at least the aqueous in the eye uh, is produced by the tissue there. It's not, it's not from a blood vessel and uh, fluid coming in. It's the opposite way, going into the bloodstream. So what are mixed devices? Uh, the side pass was a really good idea, and I put in a bunch of those, but then a year later, <laughs> they pulled it out of the market <laughs> because they learned that this tip of it uh, was rubbing against the cornea and causing corneal decompensation, which can lead to uh, the need for a corneal transplant later on. Uh, so we don't do that anymore. The eye stent was the first mixed device that became available around, I think it's around 2012. Uh, and then this was the first generation, and then they came out with the eye stent inject, where there's two devices. So this stent, you have to actually hook it in there, uh, but the eye stent inject, uh, you just push it in. So the idea was it would be a little simpler, but then we found out it was harder. <laughs> I'll tell you more later. The hydrous stent um, is a longer device that goes in the drain. So all of these devices are right near the drain uh, where the fluid's supposed to get out. And then the Zen gel stent is a device where you're creating a, an alternate pathway to go outside the eye into the subconjunctival space. Then there's other mixed devices, uh, the trabectome, the Kahoot dual blade, where you're scraping or removing the trabecular meshwork to get rid of that first resistance uh, for aqueous outflow. And then, uh, let's see, Trap360 and uh, GAT, where you just put in a suture there and then you tear open the drain. So, you know, when a new procedure comes, you have to decide, am I going to do that? Does it seem like it's going to work? And uh, you spend a lot of time and money. Some of these, like the trabectome, you have to purchase the equipment, which I think can be twenty or 30000 And then how many procedures do you have to do to break even? <laughs> um, so sometimes you, you don't do it because you wonder if there's another procedure that uh, will do just as well and not as expensive. So that's why we say no surgeon is trained in all mixed devices, but the, the best mixed device for your patient is the one with which your surgeon feels confident. So, uh, and there's definitely a, a learning curve when you do your first five or 10 cases, you have a lot more problems. So if you hear that a surgeon is starting a new procedure, give him some time until it gets better and then 
when he tells you that, oh yeah, we're getting good results, then uh, you can send your patient to him. The good news about glaucoma is that most of the time it's not that urgent. I mean, you can have surgery a few months later, unless if your pressure is really high, then you have to have it quickly. Okay, so, so where do we put these devices, the Iceland and the Hydrus? Uh, this is the trabecular meshwork. You're basically putting it into Schlem's canal to bypass this first area of resistance. And the primary resistance area is the juxtacanalicular meshwork. Uh, fluid seems to be able to get through the uveoscleral meshwork and the corneoscleral meshwork, uh, but then this is where the fluid has to sort of permeate through to get into Schlem's canal to get out of the eye, and uh, we're bypassing that with a couple of these stents. So what are the advantages of stenting Schlem's canal? Uh, you're using the patient's natural physiologic flow. Uh, there's rarely any risk of hypotony where the pressure goes down too low um, because usually the episclerovenous pressure is anywhere from 8 to 11 millimeters of mercury. And uh, there's no bleb, which is uh, something that the trabeculectomy created on the top part of the eye that can get infected later. Um, and there's minimal disruption to the angle anatomy. Okay, so what are the indications for eye stent or hydrus? Um, basically, you have to have mild to moderate open angle glaucoma and a visually significant cataract. And the reason for that is because when these companies apply to uh, get FDA approval, they did their studies in conjunction with cataract surgery because once you remove the cataract, it, the angle opens up more and it's easier to put the stent in. And so their studies showed that if you put a stent in, you get lower pressure than if you do cataract surgery alone. So they got a FDA approval for that. So then you think, okay, well, then what about someone who already had cataract surgery? Couldn't you put the stent in because the angle is wide open, it's just as easy to put it in? Well, they didn't apply for that, for FDA approval. So technically, it's not FDA approved. And so when it's not FDA approved, the insurance companies don't pay for it, so we're sort of stuck. Personally, I think the companies did it that way because then they knew they would put in more stents or they would sell more stents because you only have this one chance. So we better do it while we can because we can't do it later and it might help. So, but it, it does, studies have shown that it does reduce medication burden. It, uh, it helps to stabilize the pressure more and, uh, and you're not burning any bridges because you're working in the angle and other glaucoma procedures are usually done on the top part of the eye and you're not disturbing that area anymore. Okay, so what are the contraindications for eye stent or hydrus? If the angle is closed or you have neovascularization or angle recession where the drain, even though it looks open, it's probably not working downstream past Slem's canal, so it's not worth putting in the stent. Uh, uveitic glaucoma, they have lots of inflammation and the, uh, the iris can stick to the drain, so it's not a a good uh, condition to put this in. Okay. So here's uh, angle recession where it looks like the iris is coming down to here. This is cilia body and uh, here's scleral spur and trabecular meshwork is probably right here and all this. Yeah, that seems like a really wide band. And here, there's, when it looks red like this, that means there's blood in there, which is not normal. So there are probably new blood vessels there. Like Dr. Blackburn said, new blood vessels growing in the eye, they're not of any use. 
so the iris sticks and so you, you can't put it in there and then if you have peripheral anterior synechia then you can't get to the drain. Okay, so these are the eye stents. Uh, the first generation heparin-coated titanium stent and then they came out with the, the two and this uh, has some promise. At least the glucose rep told me that um, they're hoping for FDA approval by January, but technically can't say that. <laughs> but I'm telling you the secret. <laughs> so it's a good thing you came to this meeting. <laughs> so this uh, could be, uh, they're hoping to get FDA approval as a standalone procedure. If we put in three stents, then that does seem to lower the pressure more. Um, so how big is this stent? This is one millimeter. So you can see that the length of the stent is less than one millimeter, or maybe about the same. And then this is about a quarter millimeter. And then the eye stent inject is like a quarter millimeter wide and maybe half a millimeter deep. Okay, so how effective is this? So one of the good things about this study is that uh, well, other studies showed it too, but this shows that even if you just have cataract surgery, half the time your pressure will come down. So they had two groups, cataract extraction with eye stent versus cataract extraction alone, and after two years, this was the 50% uh, of patients with cataract surgery had a pressure of less than 21, and then if you had an eye stent, 61%. So the difference is only 11% uh, more patients had uh, lower pressure. Well, what about looking at 20% pressure reduction from before surgery and after? 48% of cataract surgery alone and 66%. So uh, I think this number is not correct. So it should be 18%. Isn't that? 48 to 66, the difference is 18, right? <laughs> I used to be pretty good in math, but now as I get older, <laughs> I'm having to use the calculator more. <laughs> so more people that had the eye stent uh, did have a greater than 20% pressure reduction. And then medication reduction. So. Um, if you had cataract surgery alone, after two years, they, were, uh, re they reduced the number of glaucoma meds uh, by about one, a little more than one, and, and the ISTENT group was 1.4. Now, you might put, this is just averages, that's why it comes out to point something, because, you know, patient will be on three medicines and maybe they'll go to two medicine, but then you have a whole group of people, and that's how you get averages like that. Okay, so, uh, and then when the glaucose came out with the Eistin Inject, they did uh, a similar study. And this time, cataract surgery alone came out to 62% <laughs> instead of 48%. So, you know, when you do studies, sometimes it comes as predicted, sometimes it, it's a little different. But the main point was comparing cataract surgery alone versus Eisen Inject, there was a greater chance of achieving lower pressures with the Eisen Inject. So that's how they got FDA approval. And uh, so now basically any patients with mild to moderate glaucoma that need cataract surgery, we would offer this to them and uh, many of them do choose to, to have it done. The post-op management uh, is pretty much just like cataract surgery alone. Uh, we'll see them at one day, one week, and one month. Uh, same post-op medicines, usually a steroid and antibiotic uh, combination. We don't stop any glaucoma meds. Unless if, if they're on three meds, some people will stop one of them and then see how the pressure does. Uh, some patients may stop all their meds thinking this is going to fix their problem, 
but then they're more likely to have a pressure spike. So if you have glaucoma, you're more likely to have a pressure spike right after cataract surgery than if you don't have glaucoma. And so that's why even just to reduce the risk of post-op pressure spike, uh, sometimes these stents help. Okay, so when you gonioscope them with a special mirrored lens, you can see where the stent is, and uh, it's supposed to be in the trabecular meshwork. I had a, a patient who, these are eye stent injects, but um, I had a patient that moved from Texas to Washington State where I practice, and uh, he had cataract surgery and eye stents in both eyes. And when I gonioed him, I was surprised both eyes, both eye stents were just floating in the angle. <laughs> it wasn't injected, it wasn't inserted. And I asked him if he got much pressure effect after his surgery. And he said, yeah, a little bit. You know, so just having cataract surgery probably lowered the pressure. But, you know, even if it's not in the right place, if, uh, if it's not causing any problems, we just leave it and uh, there's no CPT code to go in and reinsert an eye stent. So we don't know how to bill it. <laughs> okay. All right, so sometimes you can have uh, hyphemas. Sometimes it could be more than just a microhyphema. You can have lots of blood. Um, so, yeah, the, one of our surgeons, when he was just learning to do Eisten injects. Uh, after he put in the Eisten inject, he kept the pressure a little normal, or maybe a little high, and the next day the pressure was really high. So then when he did the next one, uh, he decided he's not gonna leave the pressure high. He left it a little on the low side, and the next day the patient had a big hyphema, blood in the anterior chamber. And he talked to me about it because I had been doing it for a few years. And I told him, oh, yeah, you're supposed to elevate the pressure to about 25 <laughs> when you're done so that you won't get the hyphema. But of course, you don't want to make it too high. Um, anyways, so that's what comes with experience, even though the rep is there to teach you how to do it. But uh, it takes time to learn all these little uh, nuances of how to do it. Okay, so uh, sometimes the pressure may not drop, uh, and sometimes you can see a, a little film growing over the stent, and it's probably not working anymore. But it's, uh, it's a procedure that's pretty minimally invasive. You do it, and if it helps, great. If it doesn't, then, uh, then you move on to something else. Okay, so when to discontinue the medications? Uh, usually not until after they're off their steroid drops because sometimes glaucoma can, patients can develop steroid-induced glaucoma uh, in the post-op period and it would help to keep the glaucoma medicines on. And uh, okay, now the hydrus microstent. Um, this is a, a larger device, it's eight millimeters long. So the eye stent was made of titanium and this is made of uh, nitinol, which is titanium and nickel alloy. And it's a little flexible, it's not stiff like the, the eye stents. And it will cover three clock hours of Slim's canal. And uh, the tip of it extends into the anterior chamber to allow fluid to get in this way, and also this stretches Slim's canal to allow fluid to get out that way. So this is the study that looked at hydrus with cataract surgery versus cataract surgery alone, and this was their results. So cataract surgery alone, 55% of uh, patients got 20% reduction, and uh, with the hydrus patients, 79%, so it's a slightly higher number, 24% more patients uh, 
uh, gutter drop in pressure. And this is quite significant. 40% more were able to get off all their glaucoma med medicines. And most of these patients are only on one or two glaucoma meds if they have mild to moderate glaucoma. So some people ask, well, which is better, the eye stent or the hydrus? And there's one study that uh, did a head-to-head -head trial, hydrus versus two eye stents. So this is not the eye stent inject. It's the, the original eye stent, but they decided to do two of them because we knew two would lower the pressure more than one. And uh, this is the results. Uh, the hydrus had a 20% greater reduction in pressure than, uh, oh wait, Looking at patients that had, wait, this is not 20%. <laughs> I would say that's 26%, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know who did these numbers. <laughs> All right. So, uh, and as far as reduction in medications, uh, the hydrus group were able to reduce their medications more than the eye stents. Um, and 23% uh, more patients were medication-free if they got the hydrus compared to the eye stent. So when we started doing this, um, 2012, 2013, uh, we were only doing eye stents because that's all that was available. When hydrus became available, our eye stent rep became the hydrus rep. <laughs> he jumped ship. <laughs> And uh, since we already had a relationship with him, he said, hey, try hydras because I think it's more effective. And sure enough, uh, I did see a be better pressure drop. And so there was a time when uh, we were doing like 50-50, and now I think within PCLI, uh, probably doing like 90% hydras and about 10% ice stents. But that could change because next year, reimbursements for these procedures are going down significantly. <laughs> and it's unfortunate that uh, we're affected by that so much. There's some insurances that don't even cover the cost of the stent. <laughs> and that's all the Medicaid insurances. So we just sort of say, okay, we'll do two or three a month of Medicaid patients. <laughs> and. <laughs> the Medicare patients will cover their costs. All right, so hydrus can have some complications. It is a longer device, and if it's not inserted properly, it can sometimes uh, cause problems. Um, sometimes the iris in the periphery, the PAS can cause obstruction. Uh, sometimes their pressure can go up, and sometimes they can have hyphema. Um, you wonder if this is really working or not. Well, there was a patient that had a hydrus who called uh, on the weekend and said, my vision's really blurry. And uh, so they came in and he had a hyphema. <laughs> and we're wondering, how did he get the hyphema? And then we realized it's because his eye pressure was really low, he, he rubbed it or something and pressure went down so basically, you get reflux of blood into the anterior chamber through that stent. And then you just wait, tell them uh, not to rub their eyes, and then it cleared up. But it was sort of good to know that it's still open. <laughs> it didn't close off. All right. And pretty much same thing with hydrus. I'm more likely to just let them stop one medicine because uh, especially on the first day, usually their pressure is much lower, like sometimes even single digits, eight or nine. Um, but most of them, uh, we don't try to get them off medicines until they're fully healed. Okay, so we have about seven minutes left, and uh, I'll try to go over this quickly. There, this is the... Uh, aqueous veins in the, I think it's actually the collector channels. And the, okay, so this is right eye and left eye. The nose is here, 
So if you look at the eye, there are more collector channels in the infranasal area, uh, much less superiorly. So we try to put the stents in this area to uh, allow the fluid to get out easier. And so this is to see, okay, where is, uh, it's actually a surgery video, oh there. So a dye was put into the eye. This is before an eye stent was placed. And there were two eye stents placed here. And you can see how the dye gets out of the eye much easier after the stents were placed. So that's how you can figure out how fluid exits the eye. This is before uh, a glaucoma patient where they have very little fluid going out. And you can see a lot more fluid going out. Okay, so here is, uh, oops, okay. So after there's an eye stent inject placed around here and here, I'm injecting fluid, balanced salt solution, and then you can see this vein sort of blanch out and now as the pressure comes down the blood's coming back and now I'm injecting more fluid and watch how this area the blood vessels disappear see how it blanches uh, there's one over here too but it's not as noticeable so now the blood vessels refill when the pressure comes down So this is the actual surgery. Placing the eye stent. Uh, there's a, a protective shield that covers the tip and then you retract it back. And then there's a, a trocar in the middle. The stents are inside here and you place it on the trabecular mesh where press the clicker and then it shoots it. You put a little bit of pressure on it while you shoot it. And then there's the stent. Then you have to be very careful that you pull straight back because if you tilt it a little, you knock it off. So here's the second one going in. And uh, so you immediately see blood coming out. If you don't see blood coming out, then you may not be in the right place because if you're in canal and when the eye pressure goes down, you're gonna get blood refluxing back. So that's how you know you're in the right place. So here's two stents. They're a little close. Um, you you wanna place it around two or three clock hours apart to try to access more collector channels if possible. All right, so here's surgery of a hydra stent being placed. So I'm sitting on the left side of the eye and I go in at around one o'clock and you place it four o'clock hours away. And uh, the nice thing about the hydrus is that the tip of the inserter, you can actually use that to feel for where the canal is. Uh, the stent's coming out, it didn't catch, so now I'm repositioning, pushing a little further into the canal and now you can see it go into that tissue. So this part is sticking out too much, so I have this hydrus pusher device that uh, our company owner, Bob Ford, invented. And it fits right there and just slide it in. Okay, so that's how the stent looks. Uh, here's a patient with osteogenesis imperfecta where the sclera is a little thin. And this is the only patient where I could actually see the hydra stent through the sclera because it was so thin. 
So the opening is over here. Okay, now um, it's 4.09. We're supposed to finish in a minute, so we're going to end this section and then I think you get a 10-minute break and we'll start with the Zen gel stand. But for those that may not come to the second session because the first session was so boring, <laughs> I do want to tell you something about this. Did, did you guys get the medical evangelists? Uh, so if you turn to page 30, there's uh, an article called Ministry Expands with God as Partner. And it talks about PCLI, that's where I work, Pacific Cataract and Laser Institute. And uh, Bob Ford, who's the owner, and the article talks about how we pray with our patients. And, uh, you know, I'm in a practice situation where we're at a referral center mainly for cataract and LASIK surgery. And we take care of glaucoma if they need to be taken care of, but we're perfectly happy if they go somewhere else <laughs> for their glaucoma care. But uh, our optometrists do all the pre and post-op care. So uh, they schedule the surgeries. So the surgeons will meet them for 10 or 15 seconds in the pre-op area, ask if they have any questions. And then we do their surgeries for five or 10 minutes then we never see them again. So then you wonder, well, how can we be effective as medical evangelists in that situation? Well, we do try to pray with all our patients. Um, and we've gone through so many different ways of asking if they want prayer. Uh, there was one surgeon who liked to ask himself, but he doesn't really have time to ask them until the patient's already draped, lying there, waiting for the surgery, and then he walks in and sits down and says, could I pray with you? <laughs> and they're going, why, do you need it? <laughs> so, um, there was a patient, patient that actually wrote a complaint letter to the medical board and to the Academy of Ophthalmology, and, uh, and then fortunately, eventually, it, it got thrown out. I mean, he, he wanted to uh, have that doctor's license taken away, but it all worked out. Um, but because of that, we decided, okay, we need to have someone else ask so the patient doesn't feel pressured. And this article talks a little bit about that. Uh, but basically, depending on how you ask, sometimes you're more likely to get a yes or a no. Um, I like them to ask, the surgeon would like to pray with you before surgery, is that okay with you? And we even wrote it down. <laughs> but some staff just, they don't do that. And I've heard them asking like, do you want the doctor to pray with you before surgery? <laughs> And then, you know, I think it also depends on their spiritual state. Because if they want more prayer, uh, then they'll ask it a certain way. One of our surgeons said, oh yeah, whenever I go to that site, it's like 100% of the patients want prayer. Because when we come into the OR, there's a monitor that tells us whether the patient wants prayer or not. So then when we sit down, we'll pray with them before surgery. And so he he started listening, asking, uh, or trying to figure out how they asking. And he found out that there's this Catholic uh, nurse who was in that site. And she would basically tell them, now the surgeon's going to pray with you. Do you want to listen? <laughs> so anyways, uh, the other thing we do is we give them Doug Batcher's book, The Richest Caveman. How many of you read that book? Yeah, it's amazing, his life story. So uh, each patient gets a little gift bag with that in there. And in the last 15 years since we started doing that, we've given away 270,000 uh, copies of that book. And there's a, a mail-in offer inside that 
that says, if you want a copy of the great controversy which is mentioned in one of the pages, then mail in this letter. And so far we've given away over 11,000 great controversies at patient's request. So we feel like uh, even though we only spend a few minutes with them, uh, hopefully we're planting seeds and having some impact. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.